0: You're listening to the So What Podcast.
1: We see, especially in the Old Testament, it says that God is the judge. Well, how can both of those be true? How can God be the shepherd and him send somebody to be the shepherd? We see the same phenomenon to do with judging in the Old Testament. He says, I will be the judge and I will send somebody to be the judge in this. And so the only way in which that is unified is in Jesus Christ, both God and man.
0: and welcome to another episode of the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakesh, Matt O'Reilly, and Brad Mills. On well, this episode, we're very honored to be joined by Dr. Timothy Paul Jones to discuss the line in the Apostles' Creed, Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Dr. Jones is the C. Edwin Geens Professor of Christian Family Ministry and the Associate Vice President at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he also received his Ph.D. Dr. Jones has authored and edited more than a dozen books in the fields of family ministry and apologetics, including Misquoting Truth, Trained in the Fear of God, and the CBA bestseller, The Da Vinci Code Breaker. Well, before we head over to that discussion, we'd just again like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, consider rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and the contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. If you have any questions about the show, you can submit them by emailing hello at And You can also keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast. Let's head over to our interview with Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones, thank you very much for being on So What Podcast.
1: All right, it's great to be with you.
0: What we're doing is we're talking about the line in the Apostles' Creed, speaking of the Son, that he will come to judge the living and the dead and obviously there are there, there's a theme of end times that he will come that this is a an event that's going to come in the future and not immediately in in the past I should say if I'm not mistaken you've recently uh, written on that very topic
1: yes I've written a couple of different books on this one of them is a, a view uh, our a book called uh, four T- four views of the end times that also is a video series that uh, several different churches have used as well as a book called uh, Rose guide to end times prophecy and so written both of those uh, just to try to explicate and help Christians understand better on a very in a very under- understandable way uh, these different issues and not from one particular perspective um, I think it's important for Christians to understand a range of perspectives on this particular issue
0: that sounds good and and so you you said that the title is the four views that's it is there just four views or are those sort of the the four main views?
1: these would be the four primary views of the end times it is interesting just as a sidelight, that uh, up until sometime in the 1700s, 1800s, Christians only considered there to be two views of the end times. One would be a millenarian view, which would be that there would be a physical return of Jesus to reign for a thousand years on earth. And the other one would be a spiritual millennium view in which they believed that that was more of a uh, a description of a spiritual reality of Christ's present reign. Uh, But at this time in church history, there are considered to be four primary views of the way that uh, God will bring about the end of time uh, when at his, in his time and in his way. And
0: uh, would you walk us uh, through those four?
1: Sure, be glad to. So let's look first at uh, historical premillennialism. That would be one of the primary views, is historical premillennialism. Which in historical premillennialism, let's kind of unpack those different terminologies. Historical is because, as far as we can tell, it was the oldest view in church history. It is the oldest view of ch- in church history, the earliest church fathers who express a particular view of the end times. Express this particular view, which is that Christians will endure times of tribulation. They will be tested and tried and endure times of tribulation, and then Jesus Christ will return to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so, pre-millennial is pre-before, and then millennium refers to a thousand. And so, Jesus Christ returns prior to a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. So that would be historical premillennialism. We'll look at a couple of others, uh, some of the others that are, are similar. They have, There's some overlap between them, uh, but one of those would be amillennialism, which is a little bit of a misnomer because amillennial will be no millennium, which isn't really true. Uh, persons who are amillennialists don't reject the idea of a millennium, but what they do reject is the idea that it will be a physical reign upon the earth of Jesus himself on the earth reigning. So, from an amillennial perspective, one would say that uh, at the same time, uh, Christians are enduring tribulation on the earth. They're enduring times of, of persecution and hardship upon the earth. But simultaneously, Jesus Christ is reigning from the heavens. And so this reign is a present thing that is happening right now. And what will happen at the end of time is that that reign that is from the heavens upon the earth right now, with the earth will, uh, that Jesus Christ will return uh, in some sense at the end of this millennium. Uh, but although the years is clearly symbolic in this particular view. And so Jesus Christ will return and make all things new. And in some sense, uh, the time uh, time upon the earth, the fallenness of the earth will be overwhelmed, overcome by the glories of the kingdom of Christ, and Jesus Christ will reign uh, forever and ever. And so that's amillennialism. So Jesus Christ returns uh, to earth still in this particular view, but um, there is not a physical reign upon the earth preceding him making all things right and new that happens as a unified event. So then there'd be post post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is, in general, there's a few different genuses we might say, of that particular perspective, as there are in several of them, and that would be that the earth that that Jesus Christ will reign, not physically upon the earth, but he will reign spiritually upon the earth, and by means of, in its best expression, I think by means of the proclamation of the gospel, the world will be transformed into a glorious and wonderful kingdom place. Uh, It will be transformed into that And so at the end of time, things will get better toward the end, and uh, this glorious earth that has been renewed through revival and proclamation of the gospel, Jesus Christ will return to this, to an earth that has been renewed and transformed already by means of the gospel. And the last view that I would mention would be dispensational premillennialism, uh, which dispensational premillennialism is the view that uh, Jesus Christ will premillennial, that he will return prior to a millennium, but it separates two different realities that all of the other views uh, unify as one, and that is the rapture and the return. So the other views kind of see this catching of the church up into the air uh, to be immediately followed by the return of Christ to earth. So the rapture, the catching up of the church, and the return uh, are occurring at the, in the same event. Uh, they're occurring uh, concurrent, immediately concurrent with one another. But in dispensational premillennialism, the perspective is that um, that God has two plans one with Israel uh, the nation of Israel and one with the church and uh, that Jesus Christ will, take the church out of the world, there will be seven years of persecution, uh, seven years of tribulation in which God renews his work with Israel, and then at the end of that seven year tribulation, Jesus Christ will return to earth, establish a millennial kingdom, reign a thousand years, then at the end of that thousand years, make all things right and new. So those are the four basic views, historical premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. Say
2: that ten times
3: fast.
1: <laughs> or try attempt to anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dr. Jones, thanks. That's very helpful. Um, Could you tell us uh, in a brief form which of the views you take and,
1: and why? I take historical premillennialism as the view I take. And now here's the point at which I almost hate to admit the reason for that. I can make from scripture, I believe, an equal case for Historical premillennialism and amillennialism. I, if working strictly from Scripture, I would be able to argue either one of those all the way through and make a good case for either one of those. I'll admit to that. I feel like I could do that. The reason I choose historical premillennialism is because, as I study the early church fathers in the first two to three centuries of Christianity, what I find is that they were his, they were consistently historical premillennialists, and uh, and I and I in a, including people like. You know, Polycarp and people like that, who we can trace back through Irenaeus, uh, through, trace back through different people, all the way back uh, to the Apostle John, according to some sources. And so I take that view, uh, the historical premillennial view, because I simply think that these early church fathers in this particular era, this particular area, got it right uh, in this. I think they got that correct. They interpreted the text correct. Some of them can be traced back, uh, their their teachings uh, back to the Apostle John. And, And I simply believe that if If they were historical premillennialists, I'm going to be inclined to take John's words in Revelation and Scripture's words as a whole in a premillennial sense as well.
3: Dr. Jones, a follow-up question. Have you shifted on your eschatology? Have you at some points identified more with the amillennial? I mean, being that you can make cogent cases for either, I'm guessing that's an internal battle you have went through maybe?
1: It is. the In fact, the only view I've never held is postmillennialism. So I was raised in a very strongly dispensational premillennial uh, how of uh, churches uh, that I literally had never heard any other view. I mean, I was raised dispensational premillennial all the way up and was well into college before before I took a class and realized, oh, my goodness, there are other views other than this particular view uh, at that point. And uh, then I began to look at different views. And I, for many, many years, I, I moved back forth between those and wrestled very hard with those those two views um as what i felt like was most exegetically responsible with the text and ended up going toward historical premillennialism as i said not for exegetical reasons but for historical reasons at that point
2: so how would you account or how would you describe was there in the move from a dispensationalist framework to what you take to be a more biblically Grounded. I don't want to answer the question for you here, but pre- historic premillennialism, what was the kind of the, the crisis moment for you? Was there one? Was it more gradual? Was it kind of a, wow, I, I can't hold this view anymore if I want to be
1: serious for me. Yeah. For me, I, I took, um, So there are a couple of different reasons that I end up moving away from a dispensational premillennial perspective. One of those would be simply it is very, very recent in history. Uh, You really cannot account for it any time before the 1700s. And I have a hard time believing that Christianity made it 1,700 years without getting the right view uh, at that point. There's a handful of references people have tried to pull out from, for example, pseudo ephraim the Syrian, and things like that. But I've looked at all of those, and none of those affirm uh, a really a dispensational premillennial perspective. So I have a really, really difficult time at that level. It just, they aren't out there. There's not any references that suggest that anybody held this view prior to the 1700s. The second reason uh, beyond that would be, is that from the very early stages, Christians seem to have seen God's work with Israel completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is to say that they they did not see and did not anticipate some sort of a giving of the land to Israel that still had to happen. Rather, that had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, or it would be fulfilled when Jesus Christ as the representative Israelite reigns upon the earth. And so for those two reasons, I found myself having to move away from a dispensational premillennial perspective. Uh, also, just as a something that ended up supporting that is that in Thessalonians in particular, the imagery that's used for the catching up of the church is imagery that was, uh, that was almost exclusively used in the ancient world for um, some of the imagery that's used there for when the, uh, a, a victor would come to a city and the people would run out and then return immediately into the city with that victor. And so that terminology that's used there seems to end. Indicate a unity of rapture and return, of coming out and coming back in with a sense of immediacy associated with that. So for those are the primary reasons, I just could not hold that view anymore after I really began to study and research some of these areas, even though I had held it for, for decades by that time.
2: So follow up on that, since you mentioned the rapture, do you take there to be sort of a literal snatching up
1: and coming right back to
2: Earth? In the move from dispensationalism to a more sort of historic premillennialism, it doesn't seem like you really need a literal catching up quite to the extent that you do in in a more kind of rapture-oriented uh, dispensationalism. So is there, should we even talk about that in non, non-symbolic sorts of ways, taking account for genre there?
1: Yeah, it depends on, if, if we mean it by, do, do, the, do Christians literally have to leave the ground and locationally join Jesus Christ in the air? No, I don't think that is necessary. Uh, but I think there's something deeply about that that I don't, I would not want to put that aside completely, because the imagery there that is an incredibly important is that we are... Up with Christ, and we join in His victory, and we are with Him as victors. And that's really important. In that, I think that's an important eschatological expression of our union with Christ. And so, if 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 it has to mean literally, we leave the ground and come back down, I'm not interested in that one way or the other. I am interested in us not losing that terminology, that, that our dispensational brothers have done a great job of emphasizing, I don't want to ditch that completely, because I think that expression of union with Christ, not merely in death, but also in victory and in, in our eschatology, I think that's pretty important for us to maintain that.
2: So, so union with Christ and his victory may be a good way for us to transition into talking
1: about Christ as judge.
2: Yeah, And the relationship that believers have to him in that. Yeah. Um,
0: So when I'm looking at all four of the views, the commonality is that he will come and uh, he will come to judge both the living and the dead. And of course, that's what we find uh, in that line. Uh, And so now I I think uh, one thing that's, that's interesting about that is how explicit it makes that the son is coming to judge. And you would think, um, that the father would be the one who was judging how how would you explain that
1: we've got to recognize that in in Jewish thinking, in the Old Testament, and moving into the New Testament, there is this clear expectation that is not something that they developed um, from their own human wisdom, but it is an expectation that is woven throughout every fiber of the Old Testament that God will appoint someone to defeat the powers of darkness and that someone will judge. Uh, That's really important for us to see that. But we also do see, you're correct, we see especially in the Old Testament, it says that God is the judge. And so what we see as we go through the Old Testament, this is so important for us to get for our theology, we almost have a contradiction right there uh, in terms of any human way of thinking of this, that it says in the Old Testament that, God is the judge. It also says that he will send someone to judge. We see the same phenomenon in Ezekiel chapter 34, and this is instructive for us to think of this when it speaks of God as a shepherd. So in Ezekiel chapter 34, God says to them, I will become the shepherd. You guys have done such a bad job at shepherding my people. I will come do it myself. And then he says, Verse literally just a few verses later, after that, it says that um, he is sending somebody like David to judge. Well, how can both of those be true? How can God him I'm, to be the shepherd? How can God be the shepherd and him send somebody to be the shepherd? We see the same phenomenon to do with judging in the Old Testament. He says, "I will be the judge, and I will send somebody to be the judge." In this. And so the only way in which that is unified is in Jesus Christ, both God mm-hmm. and man. And so God the Father gives over judgment, gives over the role of judging to Jesus Christ. Uh, And we see that in Acts where he's the man of his own choosing uh, at that point, that God gives over judgment to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus becomes the judge and he is perfectly representing the father's judgments, but he himself is judging as well. He himself is the designated judge. Judge, and so it's important for us to see that, and then it also comes a strong significance for us at the level of our participation in those judgments um, in, in the church as well, which it hints at in in First Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, uh, where it says that we will judge at that point. So let's think about it in the big picture at this point. This is so important; just such important things that we, in union with Christ, we are said to become that we will participate in God's judgments. But here's the important part of this. Paul in 1 and 2 Corinthians, and I would argue he's drawing consciously terminology from things in Deuteronomy and some other places about judgment at that point, but Paul is letting us know that when we in the church participate in church discipline, rightly done, rightly conceived, rightly practiced, we are We are, in some sense proleptically participating in the very judgment of God at the end of time. We are participating and we are staging a small play that points forward to the judgment at the end of time. And, and if we think about it in that way, it clarifies so much in our thinking about all of this. If we realize that we're not talking about something petty or little or insignificant, we are talking about that God the Father has given over to Jesus Christ for him to judge the earth and we will join in that judgment but not merely will we join in that judgment in the future but by means of union with Christ we par- proleptically participate in that now uh, through when we rightly participate in church discipline we are involved in a cosmic drama when we engage in the life of the church rightly and well
2: so two questions sort of on the two tiers of that comment Jesus as judge, and then believers as judges. Um, in Romans two, you get God will judge, God will judge, God will judge. And then in verse 16, it's uh, Paul says, um, on the day when according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret thoughts of all. So is that a text where you get this sort of, it's not just, um, it's not just God judges on in some texts and Jesus judges in this text over here. Here's actually a passage where those two are sort of woven together syntactically almost, um, where he affirms that God judges, but that judgment, the divine judgment is expressed through Jesus. What does that say about... I mean, is that a a good is that helpful in terms of articulating the development of Trinitarian theology? Even that, that, uh...
1: I I think it is. I think that's a very good example of that. As I said, it's in Acts chapter ten. There's some other places, X ten and X seventeen. We're going to find that not merely in Pauline literature, but also in other places in scripture but i think that's another good example of this god the father judges he does so through or by means of jesus who is his designated judge that he the one he has designated i think a lot of this has to do with we are we are way too individualized in in the way we think of things that's just our mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. and and we don't understand that that um, that Jesus, that, that 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 a king. This isn't just about Jesus. This is about any king in the ancient world. Um, was considered to be a a physical representative of the God and the nation both. He, he Both of those cohered in him at this point. Um, we also see that in, for example, uh, another expression of this in the ancient world would be the fact that if I had a slave and I sent a slave, I could send that slave with such authority that he legally is me. In another context, so he is, in fact, one of the the common metaphors in ancient literature for slaves is the is a body, as in they you're sending um, your body, uh, a master's body is being sent uh, in that, and, the, and so that's another expression of you can designate somebody else to serve as you in another context. And that's something that the people then would have gotten. We don't get that today. We don't hear that in the text, but they would have heard that and seen that in the text. And as a result of that, it's sometimes hard for us to get our minds around that uh, because, because some of this is is dependent on a worldview that uh, we've moved out of in our particular cultures.
3: Yeah. Uh, contra Bart Ehrman, you know, who argues that Jesus became God, you know, as the new Testament, uh, starts to unfold and these Jesus myths start to grow and grow. I mean, we have this claim of Jesus being the eschatological judge, even in the gospels. I and mean, in Matthew seven, when Jesus poses this scenario where many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do such and such? And they're pointing to their works. He is the one who declares the sentence. I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So in Matthew seven, even in the gospels, you have Jesus claiming to be the eschatological judge who has a personal relationship to the father. So my father, uh, you know, as opposed to the standard, our father, the, the Hebraism. And he applies the title uh, that's used 19 times in Septuagint uh, for the Lord God to himself. Many will say, to me, Lord, Lord. And so then you have, uh, so if we're talking about inseparable operations in the final judgment, God the Father judges the world through his son by the convicting testimony of the Spirit who searches the hearts of all men in Romans 2.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so going back to the questions of uh, believers acting as judges, I can't help but think of um, Revelation 3, uh, 26, I think, where um, Jesus says, to those who conquer, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron. Is that related to the concept of believers judging, that sort of rulership, um, how do, if, if so, to what extent? You know, how do we Does that help flesh it out a little bit for us?
1: I think it does, and I think we do need to take that as very clearly uh, apocalyptic language at, sure. at that point, and yet it, it, it is very clear, and it's that... that fits with Paul's reference in, in his letters to the Corinthians, to do with, do you not know that you will judge angels? He speaks of all these different things of, of, of believers in judgment uh, in that. And, uh, and, and I think it's all important for us to recognize that. And frankly, when it speaks of believers as a, as a kingdom of priests or kings and priests in Revelation, uh, that for the people in that time period would have had echoes also of the capacity to judge.
2: So here's a question. Who are the nations
1: in that passage?
2: In eschatologically you know I mean what is, how does that work out?
1: That's going to differ from uh, one person to another uh, at that point I, I think part of that is, is it seems to be in that context uh, that all those it's its more an expression of all the powers that are arrayed against the living God and I, I would put it more in that type of a category if the powers arrayed against the living God that we join in the judgment of all those powers And remembering that from the Old Testament that the, the nations was, uh, was the Gentiles was right. those outside side of the, the fold of Israel. I don't think it's so much speaking of specific people there, but of powers arrayed mm. against the living God and participating in, in the judgment of powers arrayed against the living God.
0: So to sum up so far, Jesus judges, and somehow we are wrapped into that as well, that believers will also judge. Now the question we have to ask, are believers judged by Jesus? Uh, when you're reading the Gospels and we're talking about how we are no longer under condemnation, it might lead some to say, well, you know, we get to we get to skip jail, collect $200 and, and move on straight into the promises that we have through Christ. Uh,
2: so just to, to add to that, to set the stage in 2 Corinthians 5.10, you've got, we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ mm-hmm. to receive recompense for the works done in the body. So, That's right. So what, what does that, that
0: look like? Yeah. How does that work? Uh, if, if, believers are judging are believers judged and i
1: think we have this is one we have to state first off There are believers that have legitimate differences on this issue that are um that 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 are that are believers that are, are solidly in love with jesus and know his word so this is we have so there's some things we need to state that first off just to state this i will i will state what i see that in that and how i take that i think that if we if we look in terms of the the ways that that Paul presents church discipline in, in, in his letters to Corinth in particular, it helps us to have a healthier view of that, because at no time when Paul is speaking of that does he infer or, or state or even suggest that it's on the basis of our works that we are made right with God. But he also has a very clear sense at the same time that if certain works are practiced, uh, that, that that somebody is not a believer in Jesus Christ, and that works have a confirmatory place in that. And so when we think of it in those terms, and, and I, I would not want to separate the the language of judgment for for believers, I would never want to separate it from that, that truth of of what. Is happening um, that Paul describes there, and that's why I, I hinted at earlier the uh, clearly that when we engage in healthy church discipline now, we are per- proleptically participating in God's judgment at the end of time, and so I think those are unified, uh, not just in a symbolic sense, uh, but in a in a significant sense uh, in which those those are, are are one is pointing forward to. The other, and so what happened? There is there a judgment? Of course, it says there is a judgment. Is that judgment at some level involve our works? Yes. Does that mean that we are judged on the basis of our works uh, instead of what Jesus has done? Certainly not. Meganuita, <laughs> certainly not in any way, shape, or form. Rather uh, that. Whatever good works we have done has been because of Jesus Christ working through us and working in us. And those works are confirmatory, are an expression of the grace that God has already given to us, has accomplished in us, with us, for us, through us. And in that, we are judged on on that that, that demonstrates that, yes, indeed, God was justified in his uh, verdict upon us, and uh, that that we, by doing that, we demonstrate uh, what God has done, what God is doing in us. In that, uh,
3: Doctor Jones, I got a question for you. I mean, we're talking about works, and you're kind of um, disseminating, well, no, you're dismantling the idea of a, a judgment, uh, you know, on the basis of our works. I guess I, I want to hit the question from a different angle. What about our sin? What if for believers who We've been regenerated. We have the Holy Spirit, and yet there's still this uh, battle with the flesh. And uh, you know, I'm not trying to get into Romans seven, but let's use the popular understanding of Romans seven. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate to do, I find myself doing. So, Stop. Stop. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't believe that either. <laughs> don't I'm just. do do it. I'm. I'm using it for example. I mean, believers are still struggling with sin, and we know that Christ has atoned for our sins. But when we go and stand before the Lord. You know, I think a lot of people imagine there's going to be a movie screen of their life where they're going to have to watch every wrong thing they've ever did. With, and everyone else gets to watch it too. You know, the test was, is this movie appropriate for youth group? Would you watch it with your parents? You know, and, and so Jesus is the parent here watching the movie of your life with you. So there's, there's a lot of embarrassment there. Uh, so what What is the role of regret and shame uh, over the things that we've done and said in the flesh for believers?
1: Well, I think we first have to kind of zoom out for a moment and think of of the big picture of what God is doing and God has done, and that is that when we are united with Christ through faith, when that happens, God enfolds us into Jesus in such a way that God the Father can never see us in any other way except through Jesus. And so we have a foundation of absolute confidence in that and yet at the same time we that gives us the freedom to pursue holiness but we pursue it from the foundation of forgiveness the foundation of redemption the foundation of union with Christ we pursue pursue holiness from that rather than working toward that and so we think about it in terms of of that then to go back to the question there uh, about the place of regret, the place of shame, the place of, of all of that, all of those have a healthy place in the life of a Christian. There are things we should be ashamed of. There are things we should regret. But that regret, that shame, what it should do is to drive us Not toward trying to claw our way into God's good favor, but to praise God for his good favor in Christ. And because he has already given me his good favor in Christ, I am free now to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, and to, if necessary, to make things right that I've done, to, uh, to seek to, to do that. But once again, we're not trying to make them right for the sake of, uh, of, of God's good pleasure. We are trying to make them right because of God's already existing good pleasure toward us.
3: So are you saying then by virtue of our union with Christ, when a believer dies and goes before the Lord, they will experience no shame over things that they've done? Will they experience in that moment the consummated as far as your sin is, you know, as far as the East is from the West, I've separated your sin. I remember your sins no more because in the judgment uh, we are guilty, but Christ's righteousness is covered over us. It's imputed to us.
1: There, I would say no shame. I don't think that we need to rule out completely that there is no regret. That is no sense of, oh, that, that, (laughs) Mm. in that. I I wouldn't necessarily rule out every sense of regret, but I would rule out a sense of of shame. Um,
3: And we would rule out condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
1: Right. So
3: what? What does
0: it mean that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead? While there are many different ways to think about the exact events that will lead to and surround Christ's second coming, one thing that all Christians agree on is that Christ's return will be a future, literal, physical event leading to a final, universal judgment. It will be Christ himself who, having all authority given to him by the Father, will be our final judge. And the good news is that for those who are found in Christ, while they may feel sorrow and remorse for sins committed, will never hear a guilty verdict to be ushered into God's presence for all eternity. Well, we hope you join us next time where we continue on in our discussion of the Apostles' Creed.